You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. So, here you are. Too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced Produced by Jan. Welcome to Diaspora Blues, a 3CR show produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Diaspora Blues also airs Tuesdays at 3.30pm on Radio Skid Row, a community radio station in Sydney. My name is Ayan Shirwa. If you're listening to us live, it is the 5th of April. At the time of this recording, I'm still enjoying my long Easter weekend, which means no school, no work, just good vibes. On the show today, you'll be listening to an interview I did with Babak Saeed. Babak is a writer, multidisciplinary artist and community organiser of the Afghan diaspora. I had an amazing time chatting with Babak. They were so, so generous with their stories and their reflections. We also had a good time gossiping about nosy aunties and uncles who keep tabs on us what it means to self-identify versus being identified. That's a really important distinction. I feel like they gave us a lot to think about and also interrogate in our own lives. Before we play our interview, let's get some music from the dynamic duo Electric Fields with their track, Don't You Worry. Something is don't you worry. It's all in good time, no need to hurry.
You're tuned into Diaspora Blues on 3CR Community Radio. That gorgeous track that you heard that I was dancing around to like a maniac in this room was Don't You Worry by Electric Fields from their 2016 EP, Inma, spelt I-N-M-A. So over the long Easter weekend, which I'm still celebrating, I spoke to Bobak Sayid. I'll get Bobak to introduce themselves. But before we do, I want everyone to read their article, A New Generation of Australian War Criminals in Mention Quarterly. It's an essay that got Bobak trolled and unfairly attacked by certain Australian publications, all because Bobak dared to comment on the Barrington Report. Barrington Report is a report that outlined allegations of war crimes committed by soldiers serving with the Australian Defence Force. Before Bobak shares what that experience was like in the second half of our interview, um, we want to, first of all, get to know Bobak a bit. Who is this incredible person that I was so lucky to chat to? My name is Bobak. Um, I... I'm a writer, an editor, um, I'm an artist. I um, kind of previously was a social worker, youth worker, um, and still in some capacity, I feel like I'm involved in those um, kind of goals and like community initiatives, um, but like a bit differently now because I'm not organizationally, you know, bound up in a way that I was in the past, um, which has its pros and its cons, I think. Um, and yeah, and then I'm currently um, working on a, on a novel and as well as just like writing um, things here and there as well. Wow. Okay. You're pretty busy. I'm surprised you were able to even squeeze us in, Bobak. Not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's start from the beginning. Like us, you're a third culture kid. I'm not sure if you refer to yourself as such, but you've moved around quite a bit. Where were you born and how many places have you called home? Yeah, I think I like the term third culture kid. I think, you know, it's like one of many, it's like a constellation of terminologies <laughs> and like, you know, um, phrases that we try to use to approximate some mm. sense of our complex selves, right? So I think it's, it's a good one to add to the toolkit. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was born in Perth um, in a very kind of tiny Afghan community that existed there. We were one of the first families that moved um to Perth specifically you know chain migration um so my uncle was like the very first um and then yeah brought us along and slowly um over the decades more and more Afghans have gathered there um but it's still a very small community uh, especially compared to the you know western Sydney um and Dandenong communities in Melbourne and Sydney um or in the east coast which, which are way more plentiful. So I think that really early on, I developed a, a strong kind of like, you know, insular island mentality where you're kind of acutely aware of that you're in short supply in a place like Perth. Um, and, then, and then when I was um, for high school, like when I was about 12, 13, um, we moved to the States um, to kind of be closer to, um, my mom's side of the family um, and to yeah because in, in Virginia there's a much bigger Afghan community and so suddenly I was kind of like thrown into 
a very different kind of setup where like I'm at you know public school and like <laughs> everyone's Afghan and you know it's, and it's and it was cool for different reasons I mean um and I definitely preferred it that way in the sense of this like you know finally being around people and not having that like a weird outsiderness suddenly like you know in a place like this even though it's kind of still weird not like a major city um it's just one of those places like that for for whatever reason uh, a lot of immigrants of of you know from from afghanistan have gathered you know um it's kind of like michigan there are like loads of arabs in michigan and there are loads of somalis in minnesota you know and it's like weird and not clear exactly why or how it happened but like it's cool that it happened um and we kind of form little communities all around um and yeah and then i came back to australia for uh uni when i was 18 um but came back to melbourne so um did uni and then i spent a couple more years kind of building um my kind of like art artistic practice and my writerly practice and then yeah and then I moved back to America um, two years ago now. Mm -hmm. You know what I found interesting is because I, my family, we came here in 92. So it mm -hmm. was my sister and my mom and my youngest sister hadn't been born yet. So I grew up in Melbourne. I went to a Muslim school, but I always <laughs> wondered if I had grown up around like other Somalis, because there weren't that many of us in Melbourne at that time in the early 90s. I was wondering mm. if we had been raised in London or in the US, in Minnesota, as you said, shout out to the Somalis in Minnesota. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering, would my life have been better? And so I asked that question to you because you sort of did touch on it. Um, were things a lot easier when you found other Afghanis? I mean, it's complicated, but I think in some degree, in some way, for sure, you know, like just having that um legibility you know where it's like my cousins just like are everywhere um but like at the, at the same time the flip side of that is that you know it, at the, it, it means that you know all, all my uncles are like taxi drivers pretty much so then like mm -hmm. suddenly there's like a level of surveillance right like if you're out walking around with friends you're in the mall suddenly like you know this auntie or that auntie saw you and then travels around and like you know the grapevine you know how it is so so it's they're, yeah they're it's better than bbc they're they're better than the bbc <laughs> I swear to God. before I'm you sorry. even get before you even reach home your mom's gotten a few calls and you're like where the hell are you when i'm walking around i don't even see you i swear to god ezio needs to make use of the aunties in our community let me tell you oh god I, I pray that they never figure that out because if they do it'll be they'll be too powerful Mm, uh, they're already too powerful <laughs> right and it's sell us out quick no shade but i don't want to go there so um so as we've said you've moved quite a bit and it sounds like you know there are pros and cons to being around community so mm -hmm. has this made you think differently about what community means and what belonging means are those questions that you think about mm, for sure for sure i mean and that's I feel like so much of the dilemma of, of being a third culture kid, right? Is that you're constantly striving or, you know, like trying to find that like ultimate place of belonging or that like ritual or practice or group of people that you can finally, you know, breathe easy with. But unfortunately, like the hard truth about it is that there's no 
resolution you know there's no ultimate final place final resting place you know where where everyone around you will will fully understand those parts of you I feel that you know when I was in Australia I always felt like really weirded out that like people um you know uh didn't quite know that I'd spent you know like all this time in America you know when it was strange to like only exist there as an Afghan Australian when I when I have that spent these like really formative years in the states and the, and all my family is in the states now most of my family at least and then you know now being in America it's super weird because people think that I'm an Australian and that is really weird because it's like uh have you seen my face you know like if you only could know what like the everyday Australian looks like because it's certainly not me right and and it's like this weird secondary form of um displacement where I like feel then my cultural identity is like lost in that mix so yeah I feel like those questions and those quests for belonging are are like they're like they're the like lifetime questions Mm -hmm. they're the things that kind of underlie all of our decisions um and I don't think there is any easy answer there Ayan. We hope you're enjoying our conversation with Bobak Saeed. We'll hear more from them after these community announcements. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day, a group of supporters protests this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. You're listening to Diaspora Blues, a program produced and presented at 3CR Community Radio and also aired on Tuesdays at 3.30pm on our sister station, Radio Skid Row. So we've been talking to writer, multidisciplinary artist and community organiser Bobak Saeed, so far, Bobak shared what it was like growing up in Perth and moving to the US as a teen against the backdrop of 9-11. In this half of the conversation, they discussed their 2019 Rumpus article and give us an insight into the fallout from their mentioned article, A New Generation of Australian War Criminals. So I think the reason I reached out to you was an article that you wrote that was kind of, I had to read it a couple of times because you know, the language was like not dense, but just not language that I'm familiar with. But once I read it a few times and I absorbed it and I was like, wow, such a powerful piece. So I'm kind of hesitant to use the a certain word. So I'm going to just call it the F word. So it's a 2019 Rumpus article and it's called Terror is a F word with halal sausages strapped to his chest. Uh-huh. So I'd like to discuss a few lines that jumped out at me. But before we do that, for our listeners who haven't had a chance to read this wonderful article, can you give us a quick summary of what that piece is about and why you decided to write it then? Mm. Yeah, I think um, from memory, 
the idea of it was trying to kind of like bridge these divides or bridge these kind of dual tensions in my life, which were obviously being a queer person, being someone that's like gender nonconforming and existing kind of like, you know, outside of like the heteronormative structure of, of society in that way. And then also inhabiting this like post 9-11 body, which is always already racialized as a threat, you know, as like invasion, as, um, you know, like this like savage way of life, which is mm. something that actually, you know, Tra- travels um both australia and america right it's just this way that muslims and and you know people that uh, they're immigrants from from our part of the world like you know as as the muslim ban really kind of brought to bear are yeah like are treated as like um inherent um villains like we're the villains in the story of the american and australian nation and as a consequence um we're punished for it, right? And we're punished for it in the streets, but we're also punished for it in um, the in the ways that um, that people back home are treated, you know. And and that's kind of like you know in the diaspora and and back back home, those kinds of discipline and, and punishment are mm. common threads across mm. our lives. And so I guess I was just trying to like find a language. Um, and, and meditate on what it meant to inhabit a body that is like, you know, that exists outside of those, um, you know, centers of power. Yeah. And we're just going to quickly like go through the lines because I picked out three lines that kind of, when I read it, I was like, wow, this is so powerful. I feel like you've like really um, articulated that feeling very well. So the first line I want to look at is, I didn't choose to identify as Muslim or not. My identity was projected upon me. So that's what you said a few years ago. Where do you stand now? Has that feeling changed? And and what are your thoughts about being Muslim and queer and the pressure to choose between one or the other? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like so much when I look back on my past right growing up in white australia whatever it might be there's there's so many instances where i was treated as muslim you know my family was treated as muslim and and punished for it you know or or mistreated and discriminated against for it and it almost the specificity or nuance of like our relationship with Allah or, you know, the individual differences between my family members, all of that gets flattened when there's discrimination. All of that is actually irrelevant to the persecution of, you know, people like Muslims. And so I guess thinking about that and realizing how little consent I had in the dynamic, right. And how being racialized as Brown, as Muslim, kind of happens with or without my control and with or without my consent Mm. was really important for me to realize that like even though I do identify as Muslim and of course I have like a spiritual relationship with um my god it's like there's a difference between how I identify and, and my relationship and um and the way that I am treated because they're actually not interested in that specificity. You know, they're not, they're not interested in a conversation about um, my relationship or our relationships with God, right? They're telling the story of our people, right? 
all that whole narrative around Muslims in Australia, for instance, um, is one that is articulated by white journalists. It's one that's articulated by politicians in order to serve political ends and justify, you know, military operations. And so often I just feel, especially with Islam in a post 9-11 world in Australia and also in America, it's just like you don't even get a chance to raise your voice because there are, there's, there's so many people who are either ready to speak over you mm. or twist your words so that they become unrecognizable. And so I really feel that like, yeah, I, at least for me, identifying as Muslim, um, not despite my queerness, but because of it was a really important kind of shift in my own thinking because I really resent the idea that there's like a one authority on Islam that can tell me whether or not I deserve to be Muslim. Like that's BS, you know, like everyone has their own relationship with God and like that's that's not anyone else's business. Um, and, and honestly, most of the Muslims in my life feel that way. And there's like a mischaracterization of Islam as uniquely homophobic or uniquely transphobic that I feel like is used to serve political ends you know like that's that's an intentional mischaracterization that I feel like it's really important for us to resist um in our lives yeah you wrote I mentioned I hope I'm pronouncing it right article about the ADF war crimes in Afghanistan that mm-hmm. article triggered a huge reaction, right? On Twitter, there was an article that was written about your article and basically just kind of brought you down to size. I guess that's a nice way of saying it. Walk us through. Tried to. <laughs> yeah, tried to. I mean, they tried. They didn't succeed. All right. So walk <laughs> us through that event, Babak. What did you say in the article that got people so riled up? Yeah, it was, it was quite an ordeal. There were several articles, actually. The Daily Mail... Um, and another newspaper, another right wing, I think the Telegraph, it was just like a, like a snowball um, that was basically triggered by an, an article that I wrote uh, for Mianjin about the Brereton report, which was justifiably angry, you know, and I don't regret it because shit, if like, if an Afghan can't be angry at the like verifiable documented instances of Australian soldiers in Afghanistan slaughtering up to but probably more than 46 Afghans for for fun out of boredom slaughtering them like for sport you know if someone like me can't get angry then it's like who what is what was the appropriate response you know was I and I really feel like it was a real insight into how Australians are so accustomed and demanding of a grateful refugee. And it was so shocking because I'm not that. Fuck, you know, the colony. And like, I have so many criticisms about the Australian government. And yeah, they took our, my family in and, and they took other Afghans in. They took all kinds of refugees and immigrants in. Not enough. There's still a prison island on Manus that is, you know, that is, that is indefinitely detaining all sorts of um, refugees. But I guess the point that I'm trying to get at is that what I really think triggered the response that it did from all these like right-wing journalists was the idea that 
I wasn't a grateful refugee. My family had been taken in on humanitarian asylum grounds and that one generation later, here I was with the goal to criticize Australia. And it's like, damn right, I'm going to criticize Australia. More of us, all of us should be criticizing Australia. This like army unit was not only was it like not disbanded fully, but it's like they were, they were awarded, they were celebrated. And there was such a defensiveness around actually acknowledging that there was a structural issue for something like this to have happened. Either there was oversight and approval from supervisors, which is absolutely despicable, if so, or supervisors and the overseers had no idea that this was happening and that their like, you know, soldiers in the ADF were just like going on killing sprees of Afghans. Either way, it's not acceptable. Mm. Whatever the case, that should never have been happening. And that there was such a cover-up over so many years, almost two decades now, Ayan. Um, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to answer for. And there's a lot to be held accountable for. And so in my article, what I was basically saying is that I was mortified that the response was um, weak on behalf of the Australian government and on behalf of the ADF. And more so that at the end of the article, there was a little section talking about if any members of the Australian Defence Force and their families have experienced distress at the report of the Brereton report, feel free to access these, you know, like Lifeline, Suicide Hotline, mental health services. And that's what really got me. Because it's like, damn, the Australian soldiers can come into Afghanistan, slaughter my people, and we're centering their mental health? Like you really have to ask some deep, hard cutting questions at that point when it's like, where is the empathy for us? You know, where, when, when are the mental health resources going to acknowledge that Australia is a home to multiple immigrant communities and always has been right. Mm -hmm. Um, And to have placed none of the emphasis on the Afghan Australian community and how they must be feeling and how they were feeling as a result of seeing, you know, um, how dispensable their lives were um, and how easily, you know, our deaths can just be written off to, you know, an accident or um, poorly followed procedure is just, yeah, it's just tragic. Hey. That was Bobak Saeed. That's the end of our show. I need to get out of here before Paul Factor jumps in. As usual, you can listen to us on 3cr.org.au slash diasporablues. Um, we're also on Instagram at 3cr.diasporablues. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.